How many of you, or have you ever been a victim of medical malpractice? Okay, not something you probably are excited about if you have, but uh, it does happen. Uh, doctors are often accused and sued for malpractice. In fact, I think I have in your notes a basic definition that goes like this. Malpractice is a type of negligence in which doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing wrongly or failure to do the right thing by a professional under a duty to act fails to follow general accepted professional standards. And that breach of duty, and here's the important part, is the cause of injury to another person who suffers it. Well, medical malpractice can be deadly, but spiritual malpractice is even more deadly. Have you ever suffered at the hands of soul surgeons who committed spiritual malpractice on you? Or have you ever been guilty of spiritual malpractice as a soul surgeon to those who are suffering? Uh, I bet you if you think about it, you, you would be like me. I've experienced both, okay? I've experienced spiritual malpractice. I remember when I was in seminary, um, it, I was just overwhelmed with uh, the work I had to do, and it was just it was my first year and felt like I didn't have enough time to get everything done, and, and we had chapels that we had to go to, and, and there was a certain number that you had to attend, and uh, I opted to sleep rather than go to chapel uh, too many times. And uh, the dean of students wanted to have a chat with me. So he brought me in. And uh, Dr. Louis Barbieri, I will never forget this man. And uh, so we talked, and he was in charge of chapels. And, and he asked a question uh, of why I did not attend chapel. And uh, I, was, I, I had not yet learned the lesson that when people ask you questions like that, they don't want honest answers. And I had not also learned the tack of how to uh, give answers without quite uh, uh, being offensive. And, and so I proceeded to give him a rather lengthy explanation of how the chapel speakers really weren't that good and that dynamic. And, and I had sleep issues that I was staying up. And I really kind of waited out in my mind that, that the sleep was more important than the value of the chapels. Well, Dr. Barbieri, who was in charge of the chapels, didn't really appreciate that and proceeded to do a little soul surgery on me. And uh, it was much like Zophar. He was very zealous, and he was very brutal, and it was very painful. And uh, I was kind of like shell-shocked because I thought, well, you asked, I told, I, I, and I was sincere, and I wasn't trying to be mean. And I walked out of there bleeding uh, with no bandages to take care of my wounds. And, and uh, two other men were in that uh, meeting. One of them was the chaplain of the seminary. And a couple of days later, I passed him uh, coming into a, in the student center. And he grabbed my arm, and he said, hey, how you doing? Oh, okay, because I still, I mean, I was just like, I was still bleeding. He saw the blood, and uh, he said, hey, why don't you come up to my office? That was a little rough in there the other day, and so I went up there, and he was a good soul surgeon, and he 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 ministered to me and uh, took my hand and prayed with me, and, and all was well, uh, um, but, and, and here's the point. If you hang around other, other believers enough, eventually someone's going to cut you deeply as they try to help you or give you the wrong dose of wise counsel, or apply the right verse, but at the wrong time and in the wrong way. You will suffer from spiritual malpractice. But I've also been guilty on the other side of uh, malpractice as a soul surgeon. If you seek to minister to the souls of people, like we all are, 
eventually you're going to mess it up. So don't, don't, don't beat yourself up with it. If you and I do what we're called to do, and that is minister to the souls of people who are suffering, you're eventually going to do it wrong. I know I have. You're going to think you're more qualified to judge motives than you really are. You're going to think you're wise enough to know exactly what God is doing in the soul of another person. Now, right now, you're going to say, oh, I would never do that. But that's not true. When you sit down with someone. (coughs) Excuse me, that's just. (coughs) When you sit down with someone or you observe a situation and you think you see clearly, it is very easy to move into the motive section and say, you know what, I know exactly what they're doing, and I know why they're doing it, and I know how I could fix it if they would just listen to me. You're going to do the right thing in the wrong way. You're going to fail to do the right thing when you should. Some of us are more tempted to commit spiritual malpractice by failing to do the right thing because we're so cautious and we're so timid Oh, we don't ever want to be guilty of spiritual malpractice, so we just won't do anything. That Playing it safe will be good. No. When someone's bleeding and you know CPR and you don't do it out of fear for being sued for doing the wrong thing, you're guilty. You're guilty of letting someone die when you could do something about it. Well, Job's friends came to the ash heap of Job's despair to be soul surgeons, but they committed spiritual malpractice. Why? They considered themselves qualified to diagnose the cause of his suffering as sin, but and that was doing the wrong thing. They weren't qualified to know what was going in his heart. They tried to heal his heart by giving explanations for his head. That's doing the right thing. Heal the heart in the wrong way, just giving explanations. They failed to show any sympathy in the midst of suffering. That's failure to do the right thing. But I've got good news for you this morning. You can recover from spiritual malpractice. And the reason I know that is because Job did. Job knows how to recover from spiritual malpractice. So turn your Bibles, Job 11. We're in Job 11. We're going to try to move through 11, 12, 13, and 14. Large chunks of the book of Job. So that we too can persevere to the end of this book. Now, when we take a look at this, so far in Job 11, as you turn there, uh, Job has survived spiritual malpractice by his first two friends. Eliphaz was the experienced soul surgeon in chapters 4 and 5, whose cure for everything was this, Repent, because you will always reap what you sow before you die. You know, it's like the guy that says, uh, the doctor that says, take two aspirins, call me in the morning. Simple cure for everything. Well, that was uh, uh, Eliphaz, the experience says, hey, based on my experience, I've seen it all. I have experienced it all. And whatever your ailment, just repent. It's all due to sin. And if you just repent, you'll be better in the morning. Uh, but then, and Job responds to that in chapter 6 and 7 by showing us, he showed us what to do when life is hard, people aren't helping, and God's not home. Then came Bildad, the traditional soul surgeon, whose brutal bedside manner tried to beat Job into being blessed by God. That was in chapter 8. And Bildad's answer for everything uh, was, well, first of all, his diagnosis was the same as Eliphaz. You're sick with sin, buddy. I can cure that. But his, his medicine, his prescription, was not, uh, it was not the reap what you sow Uh, moralism, it was tradition. Just do what the elders have taught you. Listen to your elders from the past 
and then repent to be restored to your rightful place. Job responded to that, chapters 9 and 10, by showing us how to respond to a brutal beating with easy answers and heartless explanations, how to reject those. Well, now Job is about to go under the knife again. And we're going to be introduced in chapter 11 to Zophar, the zealous soul surgeon, who knows everything there is to know about God Almighty, whose ways are beyond human understanding. Take a look at that verse. Is there a little irony there? Is there a little, uh, is there a problem there? Zophar, I know everything there is to know about the God who is ultimately unknowable. Well, then you don't know everything there is to know. And you shouldn't act as if there's everything to know. And yet, Zophar didn't realize that. Let me introduce you to this third member of this tag team of miserable comforters. Zophar is the zealous rationalist. His age, he's probably the youngest of the three and yet still older than Job. So he's, he's probably as old as Job's dad, but he's the youngest of the three and he has respectfully waited his turn uh, respectively, but not without a lot of frustration. And his attitude is that he's the most zealous. Uh, therefore, he's going to burn out quick. He's going to flash across the sky two times, but he doesn't have enough in him to say anything the third time because he just gives it to him, uh, Job, all in one fell swoop. His authority, instead of his experience and instead of tradition, is going to be his own reasoning. I can grasp it. God is wiser than anyone, but he forgets that includes himself. And his assumptions and approach are exactly like the other guys. Reap what you sow before you die. Job, this is a sin problem. I've figured that out. I've reasoned it out. It's a sin problem. And if you would just repent, then you too would get, you would get out of this adversity. You would get healthy, wealthy, and you would be a whole lot happier. Well, in chapter 11, Zophar responds to Job as he has responded to these other two friends. And then in verses 12 through 13, Job is going to respond to Zophar. So these guys are all listening to one another. This isn't a, a linear discussion. They probably got Job circled on the ash heap. And so as Joe, as one talks, they hear Eliphaz, and then Job responds, and they hear Job responding to Eliphaz, so Bildad gets his part in there and does a little brutal beating on Job, and Job responds to Bildad and Eliphaz, because they're tag-teaming him, and, and, and then Zophar's like, oh, finally, my chance, I get to get in on this, let me take a whack at him, and, and he jumps in there, and then Job responds, and in chapters 12 through 13, Job's had it now. He's had it, and he really lets loose. Look at Job chapter 12, verse 1, just to get you in a little bit, to give you the context. Here's Job chapter 12, verse 1, after listening to Zophar, the zealous soul surgeon. Then Job responded, Truly, then you, and that is in the plural, all three of you are the people. You are the people. And you, with you, wisdom will die but I have intelligence as well as you. You see, that's Zophar's uh, authority is reasoning, intelligence. And he says, look, Zophar, I know as much as you do. I know as much as all of you. I am not inferior to you. And who does not know these things? And then he says, here's what's, here's what's driving me nuts with you guys. I'm a joke to you, my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him, the just and the blameless man is a joke. 
He who is, who is at ease holds calamity in contempt. What he's saying is, easy for you guys to criticize me when you're not suffering like I am. See, when you're not suffering, it's easy to say, buck up, suck it up, get right, move on like the rest of us, and it'll all be okay, right? Have you ever heard that kind of advice? When you're hurting, have we given that kind of advice? Or at least mentally thought it? Well, maybe we have. Look at Job 13. He goes on, Job 13.1. Listen to what he says. Job 13.1. Behold, my eye has seen all this. Eliphaz, Mr. Experience, I have experience too. My ear has heard and understood it, Mr. Bildad, who who uh, learns from the elders and listens to the elders. I've listened to those guys too. What you know, I also know, Mr. Zophar, who focuses on all your knowledge. I am not inferior to any of you. Verse 3, but I would speak to the Almighty. Basically, you guys are no help, and my issue and my problem is really with God because He's the one that knows. He's the one with the experience. He's the one with the true knowledge. I would like to speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue with God. But you, you smear with lies. And here's the key verse, Job 13, verse 4. You are all worthless physicians. Or as the New Living says, you are worthless quacks. You are, you are horrible soul surgeons. I'm suing you for spiritual malpractice. And then he says, verse 5. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that would become your wisdom. You know, if you guys want to get wise, shut up. You know, and that is in the Proverbs. Uh, even a, someone who doesn't speak appears wise, okay? This is just good stuff. If only you could be silent, that's the wisest thing you could do. Well, since he calls them worthless physicians, we're going to describe Zola, uh, Zophar, Z- Z- Zophar's zealous attempts to comfort Job as spiritual malpractice. I think I have in your notes kind of the the overview, the structure of Job 11, how not to help a hurting friend. Uh, We're going to look at how Job suffered from spiritual malpractice. And then in Job 12 through 14, we're going to learn how to turn to God for the cure of spiritual malpractice. And we're going to look at how to recover from soul surgeons that do you harm. Well, let's take a look in chapter 11. Uh, suffering from spiritual malpractice by a zealous soul surgeon. Uh, these guys are trying to do surgery on his soul, but it's more like a stabbing. Okay, so we got three stabs that we're going to look at. Zophar tries to do a little surgery and basically, you know, stabs him once, stabs him twice, stabs him the third time. And so, in thinking all the time that I'm really delicately doing a little surgery to help you and heal your hurting heart. Well, let's look at stab number one. He starts out with these gentle bedside words for the suffering. You are absolutely guilty. There. Whoa, man. Don't you, see? you can just hear the knife penetrating his soul. You can see the, the spiritual blood coming out. Look at verses one through four. Then Zophar, the Namathite, uh, answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered? Remember, Job speaks more than whoever speaks to him. He out-talks whoever talks to him. And it's driving these guys nuts. They think they can silence him into submission 
and silence him into repentance. Instead, he just keeps out talking them. And so he says, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted, declared innocent? Shall your boast silence men, and shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. Zophar is zealous, he's passionate, and he's frustrated. And he's frustrated about two things in these verses. Notice in verses 2 and 3 that the beginning of verse 2 is repeated in the beginning of verse 3. And the end of verse 2 is repeated in the end of verse 3. So he's got two frustrations. The first one is this, that the other two, the, the other two soul surgeons have not been able to sew Job's mouth shut. And make him confess his sin and repent. That's why in verse 2 he says, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered? In verse 3, Shall your boast silence men? You're shutting these guys down. That's not right. They should be shutting you down. This is frustrating me. They haven't done it, but I'm going to do it because I'm smart enough. Then the second frustration is that Job keeps talking and claiming that he's blameless before God while everyone is there watching him sit on the garbage dump, uh, garbage dump of, of despair. And anyone who knows anything about God knows if you're suffering like this guy, it's got to be due to sin. Yet this guy keeps saying he's blameless. That's driving me nuts. It's driving me nuts. Notice the end of verse 2. And a talkative man be cleared. See... He's like, Job, you think you're going to talk your way into blamelessness or being cleared of your sin. No way. I'm not going to let you do that. And notice the end of verse 3. And shall you scoff and none rebuke? And then here's the problem. For you have said, my teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. The only problem is, as critics often do, He's only telling a half-truth. He's twisted what Job has said, and Job has not said those words. Zophar uses the word innocent. Look at verse 4. My teaching is pure, and I am innocent. That's what he says. Job's saying, I'm innocent in the eyes of God and the eyes of others. The problem with that is the word that Zophar picks is the word for sinless. Job has been saying, I'm what? Blameless. And and Zophar says, you're wrong to say you are sinless. Well, you're right. If I was saying that, I'd be wrong. But you're wrong. I wasn't saying that. I was saying I'm blameless. And blameless is not the same as sinless. Blameless people just sin less. And they deal with their sin the way God wants them to. And that's what Job has done all along. Right? Job 1 and 2. Job never said he was sinless. He was blameless in how he dealt with his sin, offering these sacrifices. And not only with how he dealt with his own sin, but he was concerned about the sin of his family. And if they perhaps had sinned in their heart, I will still ask God to forgive them. That's a man who is blameless, but not sinless. In fact, here's what Job said back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 24, Teach me, and I'll be silent. Show me where I've erred. He's not saying he's sinless. He's not being unteachable. He's not being self-righteous. He's just saying, look, I think everything's under the blood. But if it's not, show me. Verse 26, Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? He's saying, look, I'm not claiming 
to be proud and my teaching is pure. I've already said that my words are a bunch of wind blown out of despair and depression. Verse 28, now please look at me and see if I lie to your face. He's being honest and they're declaring, they're accusing him of being dishonest. And here's the problem. Job's refusal to play along with their reap what you sow before you die philosophy or what we've been calling prosperity theology is driving these guys nuts and they don't know how to respond. See, they're saying, Job, here's the rules of God's game of blessing and you're not playing by those rules and we don't know what to do with you. Okay, so here's what they're saying. I think I have this in your notes. Stop mocking God and us by claiming your your blamelessness and start confessing your sinfulness. Well, here's what you want to remember. Spiritual malpractice always begins with people telling uh, with telling people they're guilty of sin and need to repent. When in reality, God says they're already in right relationship with him. Okay, we're going down the wrong path when we tell people without without the support of God's word, and without truly knowing the situation, we say, hey, this is a sin issue. As soul surgeons, we need to remember that we cannot make anyone confess sin, even when they are actually guilty, much less when they're above reproach. You're always going down the wrong path when you try to make someone confess their sin. You simply can't do that. And, and, and we want to, don't we? Why? For good reasons. Why do we want to make people confess their sin? Why are we tempted to do that? Why do we try to do that? And believe me, if you're a parent, you've tried. If you're a discipler, you've tried. If you care about people, you've tried. Why do we try to do that? Okay, it's raining, but you can still be awake. Why do we try to do that? Because we know on the other side of that confession is what? What? Forgiveness. I want you to confess your sin because I know it's destroying you. And on the other side of that confession is forgiveness and restoration in the Lord. I know what's on the other side. I want to try to make you do this for your own interest. These guys aren't being intentionally mean. They know that if Job does have sin, which they think he does wrongly, but they know that if he does, if you just cry out to the Lord, you don't have to do a lot of religiosity. You don't have to do a lot of rule keeping. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to be religious. You just need to cry out to a gracious God. And if you will, he'll forgive you. So they're, they're, they're trying to do the right thing with the wrong, in, in the wrong way and on the wrong assumption. So stab number one is this. You're guilty because we say so. Never mind what you think or what God thinks. Besides, the reason you think you're blameless is because of stab number two. You are woefully ignorant. See, you you think you're sinless because you're ignorant of how sinful you are. Which then means we are not ignorant of you. And we can tell you that you're, you're sinful. The reason you think you're blameless is because you don't know half of what God does about your sin. Look at Job 11, 5 through 12. Look at Job eleven five. But would but would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. You're twice as sinful as you even realize, Job. True wisdom has what we two sides. The first side is what we can figure out, and the other side is what only God can figure out. And if God would just come down here and show you the other side of your sin, you would realize you're twice as sinful. 
I wish God would take you up on your desire to meet in court. He would bring forth evidence of your sin that is twice as much as you're aware of, and therefore you're only getting half of what you really deserve, Job. That's a stab. That's a little soul surgery there for you. A little malpractice. Number two, God Almighty is far greater than you can imagine. Look at verse 7. You think you've got this figured out, Job, but I've got it figured out, even though, verse 7, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? Like I have. They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Let me show you. Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Let me tell you. It is Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? See, when God makes a decision... You can't stop it. You can't break God's rules. For he knows false men and he sees iniquity without investigating. And then here's the last, the last, he, he, you know, you stick the knife in, then you twist it for good measure. Verse 12, an idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. Now that's about the most insulting thing you could say. Literally an idiot there is an airhead. An empty-headed man like you will get wise when a wild ass of an animal gives birth to a man. In other words, you're hopeless. Spiritual, Job, you're so ignorant about your own depravity and God's sovereignty that an empty-headed fool like you will get spiritual insight when a wild ass gives birth to a man. Spiritual malpractice gets worse when spiritual surgeons think they know more than everyone else, including God. And Zophar thinks he knows the unknowable. So, stab number one, you're guilty because we say so. Never mind what you think or God thinks. Besides, the reason you think you're blameless is because you're ignorant, woefully. And stab number three is this. You are secretly sinful. The last stab is stab number three in verses 13 through 20. You are secretly sinful. And here's the prescription for my diagnosis. Look at verse... Uh, 13, if you would direct your heart aright and spread your out your hand to God. In other words, if you get right in your heart and lift up your hands in prayer to God, look at 14, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, repent, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Quit hiding sin. Quit covering up the sin. In fact, what he's saying there is, remember all of Job's servants were slaughtered. And what he's saying is, you had, you had allowed these guys to sin as their master, and God judged them and wiped them out. Now, if you would just repent, all this would stop. Look at verse 15. Then, indeed, you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear. Job, you're so desperate. You're so despairing. It's all because you just won't confess your sin. For you would forget your trouble as the waters that have passed by. You would, re you would remember it. Your life would be brighter than the noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. Then you would trust because there is hope. And you would look around and rest securely. You would lie down and none would disturb you. And, and many would entreat your favor. Job, if you just would repent of this secret sin you're harboring, then all adversity would be like a like a, a, a water passing through a river. It would just be here and it would be gone. Your best life now. But, Job, verse 20, the eyes of the wicked will fail. Remember, Job said his eyes were all 
uh, darkened and you know his eyes are failing because of weeping and there will be no escape for them and their hope is to breathe and their hope is to breathe their last what has job been saying over and over i wish i could and see job the reason you want to die is because you're covering your sin well notice the if then do this and god will do this do this then god will do this the point is this, stop covering your sin and start confessing it. Turn from your sin and your suffering will cease and be completely forgotten. Repent and in the words of the cars, let the good times roll. You see, spiritual malpractice gets eternally deadly when spiritual surgeons offer the wrong cure for sin and suffering. These guys got the wrong diagnosis. Not every suffering soul is due to sin sickness. Just like these other guys, Job or Zophar is saying, everyone reaps what they sow before they die. This is the law of the harvest. Just like the other two men, he's saying everyone is sinful. Eliphaz said, you're a slight sinner. Bildad said, no, you're a serious sinner. And Zophar gets even more ruthless and says, no, you're a secret sinner. Therefore, this is why you're suffering. This is bad. These are truly worthless soul surgeons, and they have the wrong prescription. Where did Zophar go wrong? As a soul surgeon, just like the other three guys, like Eliphaz and Bildad, Zophar made the wrong diagnosis. You want to write in there, diagnosis. He made the wrong diagnosis. He thinks this is about sin. It's not about sin. It's about Job being blameless and God showing to Satan in the world that blameless people can serve God even in the midst of suffering. Number two, like Eliphaz and Bildad, Zophar offered the wrong prescription. Repent. That's the answer for everything. Repent and call me in the morning. Number three, like Eliphaz and Bildad, Zophar had the wrong bedside manner. He shows no sympathy, and he's just relentless in stabbing, in stabbing Job's heart with his wrong theology. Let's review a little bit. Eliphaz was rigid. This is how it is. Everyone reaps what they sow before they die. Bildad was ruthless. Let me tell you why your kids died. They were sinners like you. Zophar is relentless. He hammers away at the same thing. Have you ever been to a doctor that does not listen to you? Sadly, many of us have. You know, you tell them what your, your symptoms and they're distracted or they say, uh-huh, uh-huh, writing down prescriptions before you've even given your, your, your uh, what's hurting you, what's ailing you. They don't really examine you and they always seem to offer the same simplistic advice for whatever ail you, ails you. Take two aspirins, call me in the morning. Well, these three were like that. What's wrong? You got a stomach ache? You'll get over it when, in fact, if they had taken the time to examine, the doctor would find it's colon cancer and it needs a far different cure. Or worse, some doctors think everything can be cured by their own education and human wisdom and don't realize that some cures only come from God in His time and in His way. So how do you recover from this? Well, let's find out in chapters 12 and through 14. How do you recover from this? Well, let's look at 12 through 14. This is Job's longest and harshest reply. It's 75 verses. 
We can't go into detail. It would take two or three more lessons. Let me just give you the structure. In 12 through 13, verse 19, Job is accusing Zophar of spiritual malpractice. Tells him, you gave me the wrong diagnosis and the wrong prescription. In 13, 20 through 14, he shifts and he gets a second opinion from the great physician, God Almighty himself. And like he's done in the previous chapters, having, having rejected the wisdom, which is really foolishness of his friends, he goes and says, God, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. So, to move through these chapters, let's look at, first of all, how you recover from spiritual malpractice. Make sure the diagnosis is accurate and the medicine is biblical. Let me give you, I believe we have five here, five ways to respond when you're under the scalpel of criticism. And this is what Job does, and it's what we can do. Number one, carefully study the criticism of your critics. Not everybody that criticizes you is right. Not everybody who criticizes you knows what they are doing. Not everyone who, who uh, wants to do soul surgery on, your, on you should be allowed to do so. Carefully study the criticism of your critics. That's in the verse 25 verses of chapter 12. Uh, reject those who think they know everything and mock you in your misery. Look at verses 2 through 6. We've already read this. He says, I'm not ignorant of God. I know just as much as you do. You mock me. You treat me like a joke. You think my present suffering is totally can cancels out my past integrity. But how does your prosperity theology deal with this reality? Bad people often enjoy great prosperity. That's what he says in verses 2 through 6. He says, look, look around you. Bad people get good things all the time. This doesn't work the way you say it does. Look at verses 7 through 12. This is good. You think I'm as dumb as a jackass? But all of God's animals know what I know, namely that God's sovereign and God does what He wants, when He wants and how He wants. In verses 7 through 12, He goes through and says how mighty and how powerful God is. And He says, look, when God does something... I don't care what I do down here. I can't change it if that's what he wants to do. You think I can stop God, for, uh, uh, cause God to stop my suffering just by something I do. But if God is determined that I will suffer, then I will suffer until he says I won't. See, that's, a, that's a view of God that's very rare today. And that's a view of God that makes us uncomfortable, and it ought to, because he's sovereign. We're not. Look at verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Circle Lord there. It's the first, the only time that Lord, the, the, the redeeming, promise-keeping name of God, appears in this poetical section. The only time. Listen, folks. Job is starting to figure this out that a redeeming, promise-keeping, gracious God has allowed this suffering, and until He changes it, I, I'm, I'm going to have to persevere in it. He's starting to get the picture. It takes some time, like it does with us. Look at verse 10. In whose hand is the life of everything and the breath of all mankind? God is large and in charge. 
And I'm, I, I'm, it's only he that can change this. I can't control him with my words, my actions. I can't just pray my way out of this. You guys are crazy if you think I can. Job's not saying prayer doesn't work. He's just saying prayer is not an automatic. I ask and God must act. I repent and God then brings blessing. God's not a slot machine. And then, we don't have the time, but I could take you through this, this chapter He says, Zophar, your reasoning is wrong. Let me show you this. Your traditions are wrong, Bildad. Your experience is wrong. This isn't due to my sin. Then in 13 through 25, this is where he says, look at verse 13 through 25 in Job chapter 12. And the key verse is 13. With him are what? Wisdom and, and power or might. With him our wisdom and might to him belong counsel and understanding. Job said this to Bildad earlier in chapter 9. That's what this is all about. Listen, God's wise. He knows what he's doing in my suffering. God's powerful and only he can do something about it. So I'm going to trust him. Now, he's not quite there yet, but he's getting there. He's not quite there, but he's getting there. God is wiser than all of us. So none of us can explain this fully. And God is powerful and there's nothing we can do to twist his arm to change it. And so what he's saying is, I've carefully studied your criticism and it's bogus. Your spiritual diagnosis is wrong. Your prescription is wrong. It needs to be rooted. Now listen, here's how you, here, here's what's going to help you. When you're suffering, if you're in community with people and you're suffering, there's going to be soul surgeons that are going to show up. Well-intentioned ones. But here's how you carefully, carefully uh, uh, study their criticism. Listen to their diagnosis of your suffering. Listen to their cure. And ask yourself, is it rooted in God's sovereign wisdom, which is only found in this book? Okay? And... Is it rooted in God's sovereign power, His grace, which is a free gift and only comes in His timing? Sometimes all you can do is trust God who is all-wise and all-powerful. That's sometimes the best medicine that you can give. So carefully study the criticism of your critics. Number two, openly openly speak to your critics. Woo! Chapter 3, 1 through 12, Job lets it loose. He's been dressed down by Eliphaz, beaten by Bildad, and zealously uh, cut up by Zophar, and now he's ready to speak to his critics. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Look, I know all that you know. I've seen what you've seen, heard what you've heard, and I can grasp what you've grasped. Verses 3 through 5, he says, So I want a second opinion from someone who really knows what's going on and can do something about it. You guys are worthless quacks and are just smearing me with lies in verses 6 through 11 he says you guys think you are taking god's side but you're doing so incorrectly insincerely and from unworthy uh, motives in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 13 he's saying you're not defending god but you're defending your view of god and here's why if i'm suffering not because of sin that freaks you guys out because you thought you have gods in a, in a box, and as long box, and as long as I live godly, I'll always be blessed. But if you're living godly, 
and you're suffering and you've got cancer or you've got a uh, relational uh, breakdown or you have things not going the way your kids aren't necessarily behaving the way you expected them to. If that's happening to you, then that can happen to who? That can happen to anyone. That could happen to us. Job, play by the rules because you're freaking us out. And here's what Job says in verse 12. Look at what Job says to him in verse 12. Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Where is Job sitting? He's sitting on an ash heap in the garbage dump. And he's saying, you know what? Your advice is no better than this garbage. And these clay pots that are all around me broken, because that's where people throw broken pots in those days. Your, your reasoning and your defenses and your arguments are like broken clay pots. You, uh, so what, what do we get from this? Those who commit spiritual malpractice need to be confronted with their foolishness. But remember that vengeance is God. Listen, Job's not, Job ultimately tells these guys, God's going to judge you. I don't have to judge you. God's going to judge you. Job is hurt. And he's mad, but he's not bitter, and he's not unforgiving. Soul surgery can hurt when it's malpractice, and we can get bitter at the soul surgeons. Job is mad, he's hurt, and he's hot, and he's expressing his displeasure, but he's not bitter, and he will forgive these guys in the end. So remember that. Remember that. Number three, ultimately strive to please God. When you're criticized and unfairly judged, Remember who you're, you're ultimately living for. You're living for God. And in verses 13 through 19, we come to the, some of the most famous verses in Job. Look at verses 14 through 16. I'm going to read it to you in the New Living Translation. Verses 14 through 16. Yes, I will take my life in my hands and say what I really think. God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him. But this is what will save me. I am not godless. If I were, I could not stand before him. Basically, Job's saying this. I'm tired of you guys judging me wrongly. I'm going to go to the one true judge. And you know what? When you go before God, it's a dangerous, scary thing, and he might kill you because he's holy and we're not. And I know I have sinned, but I know I haven't intentionally sinned, and I know I've taken that sin to him and he's forgiven it. So I'm going to risk it all. He may kill me, but he's my only hope. You ever been there in your life? You ever been hurting so bad? Life so bad? You love God, and you're like, God, why are you doing this to me? But I'm not going to quit on you. I'm not going to quit loving you. I'm going to quit praying to you, even though you're not answering, even though you seem far away. You're my only hope, and if this kills me, I'm going to keep trusting you. That's some risky faith, amen? That's some courageous faith. And that's, that's true faith. That's living faith. Now, number four, honestly search your heart. Job's not so arrogant as to think that he may not be wrong. He's just saying, show me where I'm wrong. His friends can't do it. And so once again... Number four, honestly search your heart. Job asked God for two conditions so he can plead his case. Number one, stop, stop treating me like your, your adversary with all this ad, adversity. Let's call a truce so we can get together and work this out. Job, God, God I, 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 I can't catch my breath, God. 
lighten up a little bit so we could talk this out. You ever ask God to lighten up on your life when you're in suffering? Number two, don't overwhelm me with your awesome sovereignty. The thought of coming before you terrifies me. Show me some mercy when we get together to work this out. Hey, he has only one leg to stand on, and so do we before God, and that's his mercy and grace. Approach him, and you'll get it, but on his terms and at his time. Job's not hardened. He's humbled by his suffering. He's not self-righteous. He's willing to let God show him where he sinned. It's just that those jokers, they don't know what they're doing. Number five, patiently seek vindication from God. Listen, ultimately, when you're under attack and you're falsely criticized, and I have been there, and here's what the conclusion comes to. I'm going to have to wait for God because God will vindicate. And He does. And you have to wait for Him. And He'll do it on His time. Because here's the bottom line. People can cut up and smear your reputation. That's what they were doing to Job. But people can't take your character. Only you can The only one who can give away your character is you. You can't always protect your reputation, but you can always preserve your character. And Job says, I know that my character is right with God because His grace has made me righteous. His grace and mercy has forgiven me. I am right with Him and He'll come through for me. And we get these most famous words in the book of Job 14. Verse 4, who can make the clean out of the unclean? What's the answer to that? No one, but who can? We know someone who can. Who can make the unclean clean? God Almighty. Who can make the sinner a saint? God Almighty. Who can forgive the unforgivable? God Almighty. And so he says in verses 14 through 17, I wish you would hide me in the grave and forget me until your anger is past. But mark your calendar to think of me again. You know, God, I wish you'd just kill me right now until this wrath of yours passes. But don't forget to mark on the calendar. Resurrect Job. Can the dead live again? If so, this would give me hope through all my years of struggle. And I would eagerly await the release of death. You would call and I would answer and you would yearn for me, your handiwork. For then you would guard my steps instead of watching for my sins. My sins would be sealed in a pouch and you would cover my guilt. Oh, Lord, I long for a hope of a resurrection. Folks, this is Palm Sunday and next Sunday is Easter Resurrection Sunday. We live on this side of the hope of the resurrection. We don't have to ask that question. We know the answer. There is a resurrection. There is a hope beyond the grave. And sometimes in God's sovereign wisdom, He takes His people home, whether young or old, like Darla's dad. It doesn't matter. Some We will all, unless Jesus comes back, we will all have to go through the veil of death. And when we do, we know that God is being gracious. And on the other side of that death is the hope of the resurrection. And therefore, we can endure cancer. We can endure chemo. We can endure incurable diseases that get progressively worse. And we can do it with the hope and the smile of God's grace. Visited... uh, uh, Dewana Michelzik's mother in the hospital, I, I, I honestly told her this. I don't know your name because I always call you mom when I greet you. So I visited mom in the hospital, 
and she knows her kidneys are failing. She knows she has congestive heart failure. She knows she's dying. Had a biggest smile on her face. Had a book by Max Lucado, You Can Get Through This. And she said, my goal is for people to see that book so I can talk to them about Jesus. And I already have. And I will continue to do so. And I thought, and I said, I came to encourage you. I think I will visit you more. Because you're an encouragement to me. Well, we're not going to make it to how to be a board certified soul surgeon. I'll send that out to you on our new life list. But just realize this. When the diagnosis is wrong and when the prescription is unbiblical, get a second opinion. Get it from God. Get it from people you can trust. God's God's people. But listen, when the diagnosis is accurate and when the medicine is biblical, then take your medicine and get healthy. Take large doses of the gospel on a daily basis. Large doses of the gospel of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his return, and our reigning and ruling with him in the new creation. And you and I can get through anything. Amen? But we need to be careful and make sure that we're board certified when we give spiritual counsel. And we got to make sure we're not practicing outside our field of knowledge because when we start saying everything that God's doing in someone's life, we're outside of our field of knowledge. And most of all, we need to make sure we have a godly bedside manner that shows sympathy, that shows compassion. And that comes through suffering, so you, you'll be okay. You'll, you'll, we'll all learn because God teaches that through suffering. Let's pray. Father, these are uh, lofty ideas and this is poetry and it's hard to understand. And, and yet it's beautiful when we grasp what it means. And I pray that uh, the notes that have been given, the, the words that have been said, that you would use these to give us greater insight to how you do surgery on souls that are suffering and that we would understand that some people may hurt us and they may criticize us, but we... We have a hope. We have a judge in you that is just and merciful. And we have a great physician in you that can heal the depths of our heart. And we have in Jesus a resurrected Savior and Lord that is greater than death. We're all going to die. I pray that we are prepared to meet you if it would happen right now. And if we're not, then we would come like Job did and just claim mercy God, I just need your mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And if we've received that mercy, Lord, may we come to you with confidence that in Christ we are blameless and we can approach you, though you are holy and fearful. You are our heavenly Father. Give comfort to souls that are hurting right now. Give hope. And may we be soul surgeons that are spiritually healing instead of committing malpractice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.